Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. If we'll turn to Exodus chapter number one, if you can turn there with me, amen, this evening. My subject matter for you tonight is this, spiritual midwives, spiritual midwives, amen. Exodus 1, beginning with verse number 15, starting there. The Bible says, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, the name of the other Pua. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Again, my subject this evening is spiritual midwives. Spiritual midwives. If you'll join me with prayer right now, that the Lord would touch us afresh. God, we come, Lord, together here this evening. And we center ourselves around the word of the Lord. I pray, O Lord, for it is a, Lord, book whereby we can receive instruction for life, instruction for spiritual life, church life. God, I pray, Lord, the wisdom that are contained, Lord, in those pages. I pray, Lord, let it rub off, God, upon us. Let it become, Lord, a part of our very lives, God, whereby we can live. Lord, I pray, Lord, for your anointing, God, in this place, upon the people, Lord, that are here. Help us, God, to experience you, Lord, before we leave this place. And I'll thank you and I'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated this evening. Spiritual midwives. The setting of Scripture that this particular passage is set in is described early on in the chapter what the context is of the chapter that this falls within. The Bible tells us how the house of Jacob went down into Egypt and whenever they went that there were about 70 souls or 70 people that entered into Egypt. However, during the duration of their stay of being in Egypt, the Israelites began to be fruitful. The Bible tells us early on in Exodus 1 how fruitful that they, and it, it, it's kind of redundant, but it uses several different words to describe how fruitful they truly were. It says they were fruitful, that they increased abundantly, that they multiplied, 
that they waxed exceeding mighty, insomuch it finally declares that the land was filled with them. From just a meager setting of 70 souls, there was just tremendous growth. And as the story would go, no doubt that there would be a new king that arose over Egypt that knew not Joseph. If we remember our Bible a little bit and go back in time of how Joseph was sold into slavery, he finally finds himself further along the line in life under the hand of Pharaoh being second in command only to Pharaoh. And so that Pharaoh, knowing Joseph and knowing how having Joseph around seemed to bless his nation, bless his household, but the Bible says that Pharaoh will have died off and there will be a new Pharaoh come on that didn't know Joseph. So the new Pharaoh doesn't know the blessing of having Joseph in his kingdom, in his nation, or in his household. And so then rather than looking at the children of Israel and the, the family of Joseph, instead of looking at them as a blessing, this new Pharaoh looks at them as a threat, looks at them as a threat. And so since the new king is afraid of this, this Israelite nation that is growing by leaps and bounds and he begins to consider the type of influence that they would have and the type of manpower that they would have if they were to go to war. He's a little cautious and a little afraid that if by chance they ever did go to war, it could happen that the Israelites would switch up sides and not be for Egypt but be for whoever their adversary was and then they would be in a bad position and they could be overcome because of the multitude of the people that were increasing time after time. And so with that in mind, this new Pharaoh set into place a three-stage, a three-step plan to eliminate or reduce the number of people that the children of Israel had and to also hinder them from multiplying any further than what they were already. And so with this three-step plan, he wanted to stymie, if you will, the growth of the children of Israel and somewhat reduce the growth that they already had. He, he set a plan in place to stunt the reproduction that was taking place among them. Plan A from Pharaoh was this. He put hard taskmasters over them. He was going to make them slaves. He was going to make their burden a little heavier. If anything, he was going to bring affliction and oppression upon their lives because it was known. Here we have mothers and fathers that are both diligently working, building the pyramids and doing all these types of things. It was known that if a mother had given herself to hard labor and that she was required to hard labor of herself throughout the duration of the day, there's a good chance then that her children or child, however many she may have, would be neglected. And as a result of the neglect, because she's so involved by commandment of the Pharaoh to be involved in hard work, she unwillingly is neglecting them, of course, because of the work, but out of necessity she is doing this that her children, especially infants, would not survive. And so it was an inroad then into the life of, of the Israelites, also just with the rigors of the labor, it being so hard, long hours, very hard work, that even men, for that matter, and women, there would be increase in the, 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 the mortality rate or the death rate that among them. So he thought, if I could just bring oppression upon them, this will be good and fine and well. Well, that didn't work. The Bible says as they oppressed the children of Israel, the more they oppressed them, guess what? The more they grew, the more that they multiplied. And so that was ineffective. 
I, I was reading this week, I think it was in the book of Psalms, and it gr- brings great comfort to me in Scripture, and I shared it with a few, it might have been this week or last week, a few letters that I wrote this week to some members that have been out for some time due to sickness. David said, he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. He said, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Amen. Plan B then that the Pharaoh had to reduce or stymie the growth of the children of Israel was our passage of Scripture and our setting of Scripture this evening. And that was to provide the Hebrew women with ineffective midwives. One of the ways that he thought that maybe he could stymie growth or reduce the number is to provide them with ineffective midwives. And he wanted these midwives in his conversation with them rather than to help bear the children from those ladies. He wanted those midwives to help bury the children. Plan C then, and we'll go on and look at it, although our concern is not necessarily with it. Plan C then, if plan B didn't work, which we understand from our passage it didn't, plan C then was to give uh, the children then to the river. This was a call for all Egyptians, whosoever will. If you find a child, you take that child and you throw them into the Nile River. And the Nile River was in through the eyes of Egypt. It was revered as a manifestation of a god. It was the manifestation of a deity of their land. So to throw them into the river was to give them to the worship of another god. And so that's what they were wanting to do. So plan A was frustrated. Because although they were afflicted, although they were oppressed, they multiplied and grew that much more. But as I said, our passage deals with plan B. Here the Egyptian king is very afraid that they're going to continue to multiply. And so he says, I got to some way get in to where they're being born. And I got to put people in there that's going to be ineffective in their job, ineffective in their position of helping birth the baby where they can kill the baby. Right there at the moment that it's going to be born. And whenever a woman then was to have a son, it is to die. That son is to be put to death. One reason why the son more so than the girls was that in that time and in that culture, a nation's identity was carried by the males. The identity of a nation was summed up in the male. For Abraham and those of that seed, the nation of Israel, or for, for, for the Israelites for that matter, it was the sign of circumcision. That circumcision gave the identity that that was a Hebrew. And if you can eliminate every male, you can totally do away with the identity of a Hebrew nation among all the people. And so it was after then the males in particular. But universally throughout the ages, this idea of having midwives has been a way that babies have been delivered for for a long, long time, all the way up from my reading until about the 16th century. This has happened for a long time, the involvement of midwives. The Hebrew word for midwife literally means one who helps to bear. One who helps to bear. The midwife was there during childbearing as that lady was giving birth to that child, giving encouragement words, maybe some instruction of what needed to be done. It was the midwife's responsibility to cut the umbilical cord of the newborn child. It was their responsibility to wash that baby, uh, to supple it with salt as the Old Testament scripture would portray and to wrap that baby in some type of garment. So midwives, if I may say tonight, midwives are a good description of the present day altar worker. 
because altar workers help bear newborn babies in the kingdom of God. But not only do they help bear newborn babies, but altar workers also help bear the burdens or the needs of those that may be praying in our altars. Whether that need is physically, whether that need is emotional, whether that need is spiritual. But we have a call to be a midwife, spiritual midwives. But I do say this tonight. Our first call as a spiritual midwife or our first call as an altar worker is to be a saint. When Paul addressed the church of Rome in Romans 1 and 7, he said to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. One definition of the word saint in the Greek is simply this. It's set apart for God to be, as it were, exclusively His. So our first call in any span, division of ministry, if it be spiritual midwifery or whatever, first and foremost is to be a saint set apart for God to be, as it were, exclusively his. Now, you say, well, Brother McGee, are you telling me that that excludes other unsaved people from praying with unsaved? No. As a matter of fact, I encourage that. Amen. Because there have been episodes as other unsaved people pray alongside other unsaved people, they both got the Holy Ghost. I also encourage new converts that have just received the baptism of the Holy Ghost to pray alongside people who desire the Holy Ghost. Because many times while they're standing there praying alongside them, notice there's a difference in praying beside someone and behind someone and then being the authority figure in front of somebody. And so a new convert that just received the Holy Ghost that's praying alongside someone that needs the Holy Ghost, I encourage that as well because you know what happens many times in the process? That new convert experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost all over again. And if there's ever somebody that needs to experience it all over again, it is definitely a new convert because what happens after you first come to know the Lord? Man, all of the hades of hell opens up against a person that just comes to know God. And so they need that renewing and that constant contact with the Spirit of the Lord more than sometimes some of y'all have been around for 30 years because, man, they're so vulnerable, volatile, that they need that renewing of the Spirit. So if a new convert comes up to pray next side, somebody that doesn't have the Holy Ghost, thank God for it. There's a good chance they'll start speaking in other tongues all over again and feel the presence of the Lord. And that's going to give them strength for the journey they're going to meet and need for tomorrow. Amen. So they need that constant reassurance of God, that constant reassurance of his presence as an, just as a newborn baby needs the coddling and needs, needs to hear the parent's voice and needs that reassurance that they are there. But whenever, listen now, whenever it comes to instruction, whenever it comes to being a spiritual midwife where you are one that is giving instruction, listen to me, that person must first of all be a saint. The reason being, that person must have already been where they're trying to tell the other person to go. Now, some of this is going to be real practical this evening. But, uh, you know, it's difficult to give directions to a place you've never been. Amen. And so if you're going to, it's good to find instruction from someone who's already been where they're trying to get. 
So that's important. Concerning the preparations, here's some simple preparations for functioning in the office or the ministry of a spiritual midwife. Number one, pray. I know, it's real deep, but pray. Because the depth of a person's ministry will be proportional to their prayer life. Or whatever area that may be. We can pray. Why? Because we can't help somebody. Listen, we can't help somebody with their flesh if we've not conquered our own for that day. Amen. So it's important to pray. It's important to pray because whenever you pray, you find a connection and there's a sensitivity with God that happens when you pray. You ever been praying and you just sense the presence of the Lord? Or you might even feel him directing you in your own life. There's a sensitivity. There's an increase of sensitivity whenever you pray. Well, that same sensitivity that you feel when you pray will be apparent whenever you pray for other people on the altar for whatever their need may be. But that sensitivity you'll feel through the Spirit. It comes through and by prayer. Now, you got to get to where you know that. Where you understand where God's at, what God's desiring, what God's want. And you'll never learn that if you never pray. We must pray. Praying, that's good. Now, this, is, this again goes without saying, but uh, let's say it because there's a lot of things that in my mind goes without saying. But just because someone is crying doesn't necessarily mean they're open for us praying for them. Sometimes we automatically equate tears with bless God there we go we got a candidate right there choo choo but that ain't necessarily the case I've seen people deep in self pity cry amen so we can't totally regulate how it's, it, you need to be sense of that but you can't totally regulate your approach on just how a person looks you know well one eyebrow's up and the other one's down I'm thinking that's a 50-50 you know you can't do that. Another preparation for a spiritual midwife outside of praying is study the Word. Study the Word of God. Why? Because we ought to use the Word of God when we pray. When we're praying with people, use the Word of God. Because, listen, this is easy sometimes to do. You can pray sometimes and get caught up in the emotional aspect of prayer. Man, it just feels right. Man, it just touch and go, and you get touched with the emotional experience of prayer. And sometimes when you're praying for someone, you can connect with their emotions, natural emotions. You can cry because they're crying. You, you can connect with their absolutely natural emotions. Amen. But we need the Word of God whenever we pray with people because the Word of God, according to Jeremiah, it describes it like two things. It's fire and it's hammer. Amen. Jeremiah 23, 29, the Bible says, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. The reason why it's important that to study the word, know the word, pray and incorporate the word, is because some of the episodes, and tonight I'm speaking about more than just Holy Ghost, you know, in feelings. I'm talking about deliverance uh, from addictions. I'm talking about all kinds of things that can happen at an altar. But whenever you start praying with someone, you need to pray the word because if you just connect on an emotional side with them, that's great and fine. But the word as a hammer will be able to break some of the hard areas in their life will be able to consume some of the hard areas in their life where just prayer alone without any word will not. But if you accompany that word with that, that word can go the extra distance and begin to break up some of those things. 
So you'll be a spiritual midwife. You need, to, you need to have some prayer involved. You need to have some study of God's word involved. Number three, you need to have some fasting involved. Amen. Again, there's a lot of things that come to an altar. Again, we go back to our uh, lesson on fasting. Remember uh, those that came down and they spoke to the Lord and said, Lord, this, this gentleman here, he has this problem and it was a devil problem. And, and uh, they said your disciples couldn't do anything about it. And the Lord said, some of these things only come by prayer and fasting. There's some things that approach here at this altar that prayer and fasting is going to be needed. Amen. Because fasting takes everything. It takes your word study, it takes your prayer, and it just kind of like boots it to another level. Amen. Just boots everything to another level. And so when you're working with this person, if you fasted, you hopefully you, you, got, you got a pure mind. It literally purifies your body on a natural. It's purified your spirit. Amen. Whenever you fast, it takes to a place where it moves you out of the way and then they're more apt to see Jesus. They're more apt to see him. It helps us get over our fears. Fasting helps get over your inhibitions. It'll give you a godly confidence. We need that sometimes in our altars, a, a, a sure godly confidence, but that comes by fasting. Amen. So another thing we must do as a church, we must underscore the importance of the altar service. Amen. In many respects, over the years, now, I'm not just speaking of here, I'm just speaking in generality, but it has become nothing more but a cue to the end of the service. But in reality, the beginning of an altar service is like moving a patient from triage to the birthing room or moving them from triage to the operation room. It's not by no means the end of the matter. We have diagnosed some things and now we're ready to get our hands involved. So we got to underscore the importance of an altar service. Gathering our Bibles and bags and coats and keys, that's the wrong response to the altar call or the altar service. We, must, we can't view the altar service as the end of the service. We can't view the altar service as a time of walking out or talking irreverently or casual activity. I grew up with the sound voice of Pastor Sizemore. Let's be respectful of those that are praying. Let's, 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 let, I mean, this was, a, this is a constant, I mean, it's embedded in my mind. I heard certain things over and over. Let's be, you know, let's be conscious of people praying. Let's, let's, you know, let's be mindful. The Lord could, you know, he was just, what's he saying? He's saying God might be doing something for them, even if you're not getting anything right now. God could very well be doing something for them. And so you got to be respectful of that. And so we got to, let's consider those the altar service, the importance of an altar service. Let's consider those that have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I'm just asking, we don't have like, you know, 10,000s here this evening, but how many here received the Holy Ghost at an altar or after the sermon had been preached? Look around you, look around you. Quite a few, it doesn't, I just asking, some people got at home, some people got driving their car, but there's quite a, I would say a good portion of the people that are here got it at the altar service or after the end of the service. And if that's the case, just from this setting of people right here, if that's the case, if most, if not all, if most new converts receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost or are harvested at an altar service or after the sermon has taken place, 
I think that should press very deeply in our minds then how important every altar service and our participation should be in it. Because many of you experience that right at that juncture in the road. Personally, this is just personally, so you can't argue with me on this because this is just personal. The services in my mind that stand out the most throughout my 27 years of being filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost are those where there was just a lingering in the altar. I think back to camp meetings. I can think back to individual services in churches where there was lingering in the altar. They stand up the most in my mind. I believe we still need the response that Joshua had to the presence of the Lord in Exodus 22. The Bible says that Moses and Joshua went into the tabernacle and Moses, the Bible plainly says, he was in the presence of the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and Moses turned and went back into the camp. But the Bible plainly says that Joshua departed not out of the tabernacle. I believe that we, to a certain degree, need to learn how to linger in the altar again. Now, I don't have the record of the gentleman who spoke to you last week, nor do I claim that I have some gift as he did to help people pray through the Holy Ghost. But there have been just a couple times in my life that God did do some things, and whenever he did, and I recall them, and I was trying to recall some of them today, it's whenever there was some activity and lingering in the altar. Uh, back in 1999, before we ever evangelized at a youth camp in West Virginia, there were nine people to receive the Holy Ghost and 21 that was baptized. And you know, whenever I remember those times, there was lingering in the altar. In 2001, we did a youth camp in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Brother Daniel DePriest, when he is a young lad, he was there. He could attest to it. There were 32 who received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And there was lingering in the a.m. and p.m. services, one and a half, two-hour altar sessions that people were just getting in. They didn't want to leave. They just wanted to stay there. Amen. Not only did people, and I'm not talking about not only did people get the Holy Ghost, but there were people getting blessed. There were people getting delivered. There were people getting healed, etc. Amen. But there was lingering that took place in the altar. Amen. After the message was preached. Acts 2 and verse number 37, the Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now I hit on this a little bit Sunday morning, so pardon me those who were here Sunday morning, but understand that prior to this verse 37, first Peter preached the message. And then they asked, What shall we do? And then he led them and instructed them on what they were to do in verse number 38. Now, Peter has just preached a powerful, convicting message. And people were ready to make a change in their life. They were ready to do something about that. They wanted to do something. But they had no clue what to do. Hence, the need for spiritual midwives. Now, just because there's an awesome message preached, and I'm not saying any of mine are, but just because there's a, you might be somewhere and say, man, that was an awesome message, doesn't mean that people's going to pray through. They need instruction. They may feel the presence of God and not understand what they're feeling. They may not even understand how to respond to God. They may not, as he said last week, understand what it means to repent. 
They may not understand what someone's supposed to do during the altar call. But look, they get their cue from us. They get their cue from us. So they need to understand that the altar call applies to everyone. The altar call applies to everyone. In the, it's not just for low down, good for nothing, dirty scoundrel. No, no, it's for them and it's for whosoever will. In the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, Revelations twenty-two seventeen, the Bible says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will. The last altar call in the Bible, and whosoever will, let him t- take the water of life freely. We must reemphasize that an altar call is for everyone. Now, altar calls, I understand. Uh, we got to take our cue from the pulpit because that man that's preaching and closing out a service, altar calls can be very uh, specific. You might say all those are having back trouble come forward or those that need the Holy Ghost come forward or so on and so forth. But they also may be very generic or very general. Amen. Regardless, we, got, we need to respond to an altar call and we need to paint some positive tones about the benefits of responding to an altar call. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let me go on to Matthew 10, 32, and let's sew these two together. Matthew 10, 32, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Now note, He that cometh to God must believe that he is. So when we come to an altar, we are heralding, in essence, that we believe in a God. We believe in God. And in coming forward, with Matthew in mind, we are confessing our belief in God before all those that are gathered there, before men. Therefore, based upon that, We have scriptural basis to believe our need, whatever it may be, will be expressed in the heavens. Because if you believe in God, you'll approach God. When you approach God, you're confessing there is a God among those that are there. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. The positive tone of responding to an altar call is that when I go to God, when I come to the altar, I'm saying I believe in God. That belief in God as me coming is held into everybody that I believe in God. And then he'll take my need, whatever it may be, emotional, physical, Holy Ghost, whatever it is, and he's going to make it known before God. That's a positive, that's a positive benefit of responding to an altar call. In Acts chapter 16 the Philippian jailer saw Paul and Silas. He seen them escape from prison. His heart kind of went down to his ankles whenever he first seen all this. Uh, but Paul said, don't worry, we're all here. The reason why he was a little afraid whenever you were put as the man over people, if any of them got out and lost, you, it was your life or their life. And so he's a little afraid. And he knew that this was a miracle that took place. It could not happen otherwise. But at the same time, something just overtook him. He's convicted, but he didn't know how to respond. Amen. He's convicted, but he didn't know how to respond. And so he asked Paul and Silas a very simple question. What must I do to be saved? What do I do? 
He's needing a spiritual midwife. And Paul immediately responded and said to him, you first must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says he spoke the word of the Lord to him, and before the night was over, he and his household was baptized in the lovely name of Jesus Christ. Why? Why did that happen? Because they needed instruction, and Paul offered the instruction that was needed, and thus the result of what happened when a spiritual midwife stepped to the front and said, this is what you need to do. This is the direction you need to go. In Acts chapter 19, the Ephesian disciples, you, this is where they did, not get, they did not get baptized appropriately. Notice, they didn't get baptized appropriately in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, until someone explained to them. Ring the bell all day long, if you will, of someone being baptized inappropriately, but woe unto us if we've not satisfied the position of being a spiritual midwife to offer instruction. You're wanting somebody to do something they don't even know should be done? That's like you just hope there's some innate ability in your kids just to behave from toddler all the way up without you ever giving instruction. That would be great. But you know what? It don't happen that way. There's got to be a voice of a father and a mother that says this is right, this is wrong, this is appropriate, this is inappropriate. And so in like manner, we need spiritual midwives or parents that can somehow provide cautious, gentle instruction, especially to those that are wanting to know. What do I do? Now, look at this. They even didn't know what the Holy Ghost was until Paul started explaining. Had you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? We didn't even know there was such a Holy Spiritual midwife. They didn't even know anything about it. They needed somebody to tell them. So they didn't receive the Holy Ghost until Paul explained it. He laid his hands on them. He prayed for them. Paul was a spiritual midwife that gave instruction. Now this, you can pin this down, but these are some good scriptures, whoever you are. If you interact with people, invite them to church, or you talk about salvation, or you're in the altar, you talk about salvation. There's some key chapters in the book of Acts that you just might need to, you know, be a little bit familiar with. Acts number two is a good one to start. Should be familiar with Acts chapter number two, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring, the birth of the church there on the day of Pentecost, Peter's message, Peter's response to their question. You may also want to consider Acts number eight. Acts number eight, the great revival in Samaria. Philip down there, Peter and John come and praying people through. Also in Acts 8 is where Philip was taken away and he met with the, the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert by himself and preach to him Jesus, and later he's baptized. You might want to be familiar with that. Be familiar with Acts chapter number 10, Cornelius and his household, who was the first Gentile to receive the Holy Ghost. Amen, through Peter, where around verses 46 in the 40s is where they knew that they received the Holy Ghost because they heard them speak in tongues. Familiarize yourself with Acts chapter number 10. Familiarize yourself with Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter number 16 is the Philippian jailer episode that we just kind of ran through right there. Acts chapter 19 is the Ephesian disciple, the rebaptizing of the Ephesian disciples. Those are five good chapters in the book of Acts that you should familiarize yourself with if you're going to be a spiritual midwife, especially whenever it comes to dealing with people with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Another instance of altar working that I may mention of is in Acts 8. The Bible says in Acts 8 and verse 14, Now when the apostles were, which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now what's happening is 
Philip's there. They've received the word of God. They've seen some miracles. But you know what's happened? They send Peter and John. You know why? Peter and John are spiritual midwives. I know they're men, but they're spiritual midwives. They send Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now look at this. This Acts 8 is, of course, after Acts 2. That makes sense, right? But Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one accord. They were all in one place. They were praying, and boom, the Holy Ghost fell and filled all the house where they were sitting. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. That's what they, that's what they were going off of. Now just stay with me. That's what they were going off of. Notice the scripture says, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. It's almost as though they were waiting for it to happen just like it did at Pentecost. Boom, it's just going to hit them and it's going to be. But that's not what happened here. It didn't happen like every time someone receives the Holy Ghost, it doesn't just happen the exact same way. They will speak in tongues. That's, that is an absolute given. But what I'm saying is, if, if you're saying, well, they didn't cry so they, it didn't happen, you can't say that. You say, well, both their hands weren't raised or they were sitting down there received. They didn't get the Holy Ghost. You've got to be standing in order to receive the Holy Ghost. And it's a bad thing to, you know, it's okay to share your story, but don't give your story as it is the rule for the reception. Because they might not receive it like you did, but when they'll get it, they'll have the same spirit that you have. So it's like they said, for as yet the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. It's almost as though they were expecting it to happen exactly like it did on the day of Pentecost. But that wasn't it. They had to send Peter and John. What they need, they need some spiritual midwives to give some instruction. Amen. And notice some of the difference. In Acts 8 and 19, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. But in Acts 2 and 10, they didn't lay hands on them, but they received the Holy Ghost. Amen. For instance, Acts 8, 17, the Bible says, then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. In Acts 19 and verse 6, it says, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, let's consider this. Something happens when you touch another person. Especially in church, especially through the biblical pages of time impartations happen when you lay hands on somebody. The Bible says in Hebrews 6.2, speaking of this doctrine of laying of hands, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. There is the doctrine of laying on of hands. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but a little time here, because you need to be careful whenever you go to be laying hands on somebody. Something happens when you lay hands on somebody. For instance, in Old Testament times, laying on of hands was meant for imparting blessing. Uh, Joseph gathered, or Jacob rather, gathered his grandchildren together of Ephraim and Manasseh. He laid his hands on them. What he's doing, he's imparting blessing to them. Jesus in New Testament scripture, allowing the kids to come around them. The Bible says he put his hands on them and he blessed them. His impartation of blessing. But also, laying on of hands was associated with commissioning somebody for a public office. In other words, Moses was instructed of the Lord, lay your hands upon Joshua to commission him for leadership. Commission someone. 
laying hands on something or someone in the Old Testament and Old Covenant, listen to me very clearly, was used to symbolize a person's identification with an animal sacrifice. In other words, if this was a lamb and I laid my hands on it, then I identified that lamb with me. Now listen, I'm not getting hokey pokey ooky dooky here. But when you lay your hands on somebody, if we go by all of these different stories, you lay your hands on somebody and you haven't prayed and you haven't studied your word and you haven't fasted, maybe even got some putrefying sin going on in your life. You lay hands on somebody, you could very well be trying to identify them with you, with your spirit, with where you are. Furthermore, laying hands on the day of atonement, whenever that occurred, this is even worse. <laughs> whenever he laid his hands on that, that animal, it was a transference of the sins of the nations. <laughs> I'm not saying you have the ability to do that, but whenever you lay your hands on someone, you've got to understand that is a powerful thing. There's impartation that is taking place. And again, there is a big difference in praying with someone from the backside. You know, some people sneak up. Bless him, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, they come up and pray behind or pray beside. They're, they're different. Praying behind, that's non-confrontational. You pray behind. You get in front of somebody, right in front of somebody, and you pray for them, and you go and you put your hand on their forehead. You're taking authority over a person. You're taking authority over a person. Uh-huh. And so you're going to want to have these aspects of prayer, word of God, Fasting, those things, spiritual midwifery, you're going to want that in place whenever you start taking authority over someone because you don't know what beyond that someone you might be trying to take authority over. For instance, in 2003, we were preaching a revival in the state of Ohio. And there was a young lady up there. She was probably in her early 20s. Her name was Sydney. And Sydney was up there and she was needing the Holy Ghost and we were praying the pastor and myself and there was another lay minister that was up there uh, praying for Sydney and as we began to pray for her she began to speak in other tongues but this other tongue just seemed to be very forceful it seemed very evil it seemed very disruptive very yes very angry very brooding didn't settle right with the spirit of God that I have inside of me then sat right the pastor. We looked at each other and we knew what we had here was an act of demonic power, demonic force. And so whenever we understood that, the pastor, myself, the slave minister, we pleaded the blood of Jesus. We commanded for that foul spirit to leave this young lady. It left her. She began to speak in tongues again, but in totally a different personality and spirit than the first time. Well, McGee, that can't happen. Okay, let's consider here for a moment. Remember, whenever Jesus, whenever John the Baptist baptized Jesus in Matthew 3, the Bible spoke that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. A dove has representation of being a peaceable animal. Uh-huh. And so what was coming forth that first time was by no means peaceable. Amen. It was evil. Come to find out after all this happened and we did rejoice that Sydney had been involved in Wicca, in witchcraft. So when you're a spiritual midwife, you're going through start slapping your hands on things. 
and you stand then as an authority figure of taking authority over somebody, you better realize that you might be dealing more than just with who that person is. You may be dealing with who that person has subjected themselves to. Amen. It could happen. Could the devil do that? Yes. Satan's the master deceiver. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Amen. Could that happen with Cindy? Yes, it could. I'll back up and read Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servant to obey? His servants ye are. To whom ye obey, whither of sin and to death for obedience and to righteousness. I tell you right now, for anything that God has, Satan for sure is trying, if not already, made a counterfeit. What do you do, Brother McGee? You do as Scripture says. You try the spirits where they be of God. Every spirit that is of God says that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every spirit is not is the spirit of error. It's the word of God. Amen. So there's impartation. There's transference that's going on when you lay hands on a person's head. So we want to be pure. We want to be first called saints. Set apart for God. Holy impartation, nothing else. Amen. Amen. We see a few verses of Scripture, and I'm not going to read them, but just for your reference, Acts 6 and 6 and Acts 13 and verse 3, these few verses of Scripture shows very plainly that they prayed prior to laying their hands on someone or they prayed and fasted prior to laying their hands on someone. Amen. Now, another thing to look for concerning Holy Ghost, many times the process of being filled with the Holy Ghost happens by people being moved on by the Holy Ghost before they're moved in with the Holy Ghost. Men of old were moved on by the Holy Ghost. We in the New Testament and people are being moved in with the Holy Ghost. So many instances, they feel the Holy Ghost before they're filled with the Holy Ghost. And just throughout the years, I know my wife and I, and whenever we've prayed with people, and again, being, praying outside of just doing it in the altar gives you a sensitivity because sometimes you'll start praying with that individual or even praying as though you were them and you'll start praying things you don't know anything about but you feel led to pray them find out after it's all said and done they say how did you that was it didn't know anything but we knew how to find God because we had a regular time of prayer and we were sensitive to his spirit and we knew when it was God saying you need to do this or you need to do that and that's crucial then whenever you're praying with people. Amen. Be sensitive to that voice. It's all right to encourage them, man. You need to tell them, man, that's it. God hears you. He cares about you. Some people don't think he cares about them anyway. God's not going to turn you away. Some people think they're rejected as they just started. Some people are afraid of what they're feeling. Tell them not to be afraid, that it's right. It'll be right. Tell them that it's God that they're feeling. They're going to feel, it, feel him before they're filled with him. Tell him that's God that they're feeling. Some people don't, they're conscious about their tears. Tell them don't be afraid to cry. God loves those tears. Just as a side note concerning backsliders, we're talking just about altar service, midwifery in general, backsliders that come to our altars. There are two things concerning backsliders. Backsliders often have difficulty accepting God's forgiveness. And number two, they're often skeptical how they're going to be received by the other people in the church. And those two things can be big hindrances for them. If you want to tuck a scripture, and you've heard me quote this several times, but 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess, it's a done deal. Another little scripture you might tuck back in your Bible is Psalms 86 and 5. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon thee. Sometimes our backsliders need to hear those reassuring words that you've not went too far. You've not played around in too much or pushed the envelope too far. No, God's ready to forgive. Woo! He's he's more ready to forgive probably than you are to accept the forgiveness. He is ready to forgive. I want to go just through a few little things here. And yes, I'm already past. I planned on being up here for an hour, okay? Some myths. Healings, deliverances, miracles, and receiving the Holy Ghost, and I already touched on this, does not always happen in the same manner. Does not always happen the same way. We've got to dismiss that from our minds. Well, so-and-so was delivered from Nick Ting because they did so-and-so for you. It'll be different for every person. Receiving the Holy Ghost, a miracle, a healing. It doesn't always take place the same way. It'll be different for each person. Number two, and I hit on this a little bit already too, we've got to assume a certain posture in order to receive from God. And you're not going to get anything if you're not kneeling. You got to kneel. You got to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Or you got to stand up. Stand up. Stand. You know, some people are so adamant about it. Somebody's there praying. They're really praying. Stand up. They're like, oh, my Lord, they're praying. You know, what's. And by all means, you for sure can't receive anything sitting on your pew. Baloney. Go back to Acts 2. The Bible says that it filled all the house where they were sitting. Number three, here's another little myth. I got to feel something whenever I pray for somebody else. I'd say 75% of the time I pray for people, I don't feel anything. One thing's for certain, our excitement and our physical activity and emotion is by no means going to make it happen or keep it from, you know, is it, well, it might keep it from it, but it ain't going to make it happen. But it's your faith exercising God just to do what he asked you to do. Amen. You don't have to be foaming at the mouth, has beads of sweat lined up hanging from your eyebrows, and be screaming when the neighbors across the street can hear you. We're just the conduit. We're just the conduit. Now I want to go, this is a lengthy list here. Those are just a few of the myths. And that is not an exhausted list by no means. Practical notations and also possible distractions. Now listen, if we feel led to ask somebody to go to the altar at the end of the service to pray and they refuse, we must accept that and let them know we'll be praying for them. Please do not force them grab their hand and pull them out while they're being stubborn like a mule don't do that accept it I know we're humanity we have a hard time dealing with rejection I I thought God told me that well you know maybe he didn't welcome to humanity you know maybe he didn't if they refuse accept that 
Just let them know you'll be praying for them. Brother told us last week, make sure you have fresh breath. Try not to spit on people. Be conscious of where your mouth is aimed because where your mouth is aimed is where the foam is going. You know? Again, you know, don't scream in their ears. Loudness doesn't equate to anointing or power. Now, we've had the misconception, if you're not loud, then you're not anointed, or it's not powerful. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. I see Jesus saying soft words and whispering, and it's being powerful in Scripture. Amen. Again, you know, we don't need no massages while anybody's up here. Uh, you don't have to tap their chin or hit their mouth. If they're going to speak in tongues, it's going to happen. You don't have to grab their tongue and do anything about it. Like you hitting their mouth is going to help. That can be a distraction. It's not just a practical notation. It can be a distraction. What you think is helping could actually be doing the reverse. Again, ask people what they're praying about. Yeah. You know, sometimes we look at uh, the, gifts of the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit in, in Corinthians 12, and we consider word of knowledge. Well, word of knowledge is where someone shares something with somebody that they didn't know. Let me tell you what else is a word of knowledge. Receiving it from the person that knows. <laughs> That's just a little funny, really, but get a word of knowledge. See what, we'll see what's going on with the person. Amen. Now, he said, and I'm just reiterating, two people shouldn't be trying to speak to the person at the same time. It's bad for two people to be trying to give instruction at the same time. Breeds confusion. Here's my advice. If you see someone instructing somebody, don't jump in until they are finished. Have you, anybody tried to listen to two conversations at the same time? It's a little difficult, isn't it? Not only that, it gets a little frustrating. And another thing, it's good to listen because you might just come in and and you might walk the dog the same old path. You know, if you have something else to offer that may be beneficial, that's great and wonderful. And for sure, don't, if it was true and right, don't contradict what the other has said. Amen. If you come in, you wasn't there from the start, and you come in, someone's been there along the journey, they've been instructed, and you come in, it might be a good practice, not might be, it is, spiritual midwives, it's a good practice to ask what's already been accomplished before you start instructing and praying. Because listen to me, folks. Someone that just received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, somebody comes in, you know, it's like the person that comes in into a conversation. They come in and they start praying for that person to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Do you know what that does for the recipient? Huh? I thought I just received the Holy Ghost. And yet they're praying for me to receive the Holy Ghost. It can damage their faith. Mm-hmm. It can cause them for there to be a seed of unbelief that gets rooted in their spirit as a result of that. And this is very simple. Find out what their name is. If their name is John, address them by that name. Use that name when you pray for them. It does wonders. Then Lord, just touch this brother or this sister or this person. God, touch John. You know? Use your name. Now, this, this is really Pastor Sizemore coming in me right here, okay? It's most appropriate that men pray for men and women pray with women. Now listen to me. I know there are times and there are circumstances where that's mixed. If that is mixed, hand placement is absolutely important. My wife can come forward. If that is mixed, yes, you, you're my wife. There's nobody else here that fits that bill. 
If, it is, if this is a lady and, I'm a, and if it's mixed, then yet my hand needs to visibly be on her head. And if she has her hands raised, you see me sometimes even praying for people up here. I'll grab them like this or this right here. It is absolutely inappropriate, hear me right now, for a man to have his hand on a lady's shoulder. What if she moves back some and your hand slips? It's inappropriate for you to be over here at her waist. Vice versa. For ladies praying for men, you're going to be praying for another guy, you better have a hand that is, I'm saying visible. That's what needs to be. I know sometimes things fall underneath the car, okay, and things happen. Yeah, they do. But, but, you know, you're trying to prevent that from happening by all means. Your risk is a whole lot less right here or right here. So we were vice versa. Most part, men for men, women for women, but stay right there. I might need you again. I don't know. No, I don't. You just go and sit down. But no shoulder, no back, no waist. Uh-huh. Let me tell you something. I can have a little problem. I have a lot of family in here. I have sisters, but I still try not to put my hand because there's other people sitting out there that don't know they're my sister. My real sister. I mean, bloodline sister. Grew up together. Shoot each other's food, spit on each other's face, sister. Now listen to me. We have mixed breed. We have guys and girls praying around a person. The girls are the inner circle per se, and the guys are the outer circle. I have a loud voice sometimes whenever I'm praying. This is just a little, this is wisdom, okay? The ladies are in there, and there's guys around the circle praying. Ladies, keep your hands on that lady in a good place because her eyes are closed. She's hearing the pastor's boisterous voice, but there's a hand right here. It's louder than the lady standing next to her. You know what could go through her mind? Is that his hand? I know this is real practical, but it's real needful. So we got mixed groups. You got men and women there. Everybody have your hands in a good place. Even if it's a lady and a lady or a man and a man, everybody have their hands in a good place because we don't want that to be a distraction for the recipient. We don't want to be the, the, the distraction for the one that is trying to get through something. And I was just thinking of this a little bit uh, later this evening, but uh, men, if you're praying with somebody and you're in that lady circle and there's praying with somebody, Sometimes in those prayer things with people in church or out of church, the, 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 the matter of immodesty comes up. I know you're full of God and the Holy Ghost, but it'd be in your best interest to get out of there. Yes, Lord. Someone say, yes, Lord. Because there wouldn't be nothing but a good old spirit of carnality fall on you and go for the second glance. Step away. If God's going to fill them with the Holy Ghost, it can happen without you. I guarantee it. Amen. Amen. And listen, this is, this is a personal, okay, this is a personal note. If a lady always wants a man to pray for her, or if a man always seemingly to want a man, a, a, a man to pray for her, if a lady wants a man or a man wants a lady always to pray for them, woohoo! beware. You better incorporate somebody of the same sex right there. We were preaching a revival in Kentucky. And there was a lady in that congregation that a few different times during that revival, and she even told my wife, I want your husband to pray for me. Glory be to Jesus. 
I always get the pastor, whoever, my wife would be there as well. And uh, she's, this lady at that time was probably twice my age, maybe, or at least, well, that's, that's, irre- that's not even relevant. And so we prayed, and she, she, she got saved that one night. And then after service, she come to shake my hand, and she, she come over to me, and she said, Oh, Brother McGee, thank you for praying for me. And as soon as she, we was going to shake hands, I didn't know that it was like an automatic cord on the old vacuum cleaners that automatically sucked in. So then she grabbed me and jerked me and had her arms around me and planted a big kiss on the side of my face. I'll tell you this right now. Anybody that's always looking for uh, someone of the opposite sex to pray for them is having some problems. Some immorality problems. Amen. Beware. Common practice, have some Kleenex close. Again, some people are self-conscious about crying, about snot dripping from their nose. Some people don't care, but that's for others... That could be a very big distraction. It could hinder their whatever. Make sure they have Kleenex and then take care of that. We've had even in this church, you know, looking for distractions. Are they chewing gum? For some, some people can chew gum and receive the Holy Ghost. You know, some people, though, can't do two things at one time. So some people can't chew gum and receive the Holy Ghost. We've had that happen here. Ask them to remove their chewing gum. Guess what? They receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In 2001, in the Hot Springs, Arkansas, we were preaching a camp meeting, a youth camp. There was a girl there that was on drugs. She was on drugs. She had a tongue ring piercing in her tongue. One night she was praying for the Holy Ghost, but seemingly not getting anywhere. We just asked her, just if perhaps that could have been a distraction. I'm not saying she could have got the Holy Ghost with that in her tongue, but I was just wondering if perhaps that was a distraction. We asked her to remove that tongue ring, and she no sooner did that, she started speaking in other tongues. Not because she couldn't receive with it, but for her it was a distraction. So you've got to, you gotta be observant. You gotta be you gotta be sensitive to the spirit. Amen. And so there must be unity in the altar call. Take your cue from the pulpit. If the pulpit is directing one way and you're directing another, that's bad. For one thing, there's probably again, please understand the spirit in which I say this. I'm not just saying this for me, an evangelist or whoever may be standing here. But whoever that person is that's standing there, there's probably a good chance. Among everybody that's there, they've probably invested more time for that service than anybody else sitting in that audience. And they've touched heaven and talked to God about what God really wants. And so if he's directing a certain way, we need to follow, whether it be an evangelist, missionary, whoever it is that would occupy this pulpit, follow their leading. Amen. Concerning that. Amen. My hour's up, but I still got more to say. So just sit tight. I won't hold you much longer. Seriously, I won't. Matter of fact, I'll let you stand and I'll make you feel good. I want to point out, listen, we started in Exodus 1, spiritual midwives, the midwives in Egypt. I want to point out a positive benefit of being or participating as a spiritual midwife. Exodus 1, verse 20. I don't know if you can go back there or if you re-put it in there. The Bible says, so all this happened. The midwives did not listen to Pharaoh They'd rather please God rather than man, okay, type of scenario. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Look at verse 21. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. 
Literally, he made them households or he made them families. Now, for my research, some sources share that, listen to me, barren women, which was a great disgrace to that culture, barren women were regularly used as midwives. And as a result of their involvement in that position, God says, I'll bless you, and you become fruitful. Now, that's on a physical level. Let's talk about a spiritual level. Spiritual midwives. Some of you all have family members that need back in church or in church. I feel through study that whenever we participate as spiritual midwives in the altars and we're helping bring about new births, we're taking care of them, we're suppling them, and we're caring for them, that God is in return going to bless those people who do so by helping allow your families come find God. Look at this. Two ladies, two midwives, I know they weren't all, they were just probably the supervisors or superintendents of the midwifery people because there's so many Hebrews, no just two people could take care of that business, okay? But it was two spirit, two midwives that confounded the power of Egypt because they were diligent about their service of just two, no doubt having the implications throughout the rest that they over, but just two confounded the power of Egypt that said, kill them, we don't want no births. Egypt says we don't want them to live. Let me tell you, the voice of Egypt is still the same. It doesn't want them to increase. It doesn't want them to multiply. It doesn't want them to live. But if we could just get a few spiritual midwives, it can, conf it can confound the, the, the power of Egypt that is still prevalent in our day. Amen. We bow our heads in this place this evening. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We can just come around these altars tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.